Welcome to Creative Places and Faces, the podcast that explores how places can affect our creativity and lives. Irish author Jackie DeBurka interviews artists, authors, and all sorts of creatives from around the world. Travel virtually and explore the world creatively. Today's guest's latest novel has received rave reviews in lots of top publications worldwide. The New York Times review said, Nora is entirely convincing in her raw sensuality, her stubborn determination, her powerful sense of grievance, and her inability to stop loving a deeply erratic, wildly manipulative, yet enormously talented man. Author Joseph O'Connor's review describes Nora as an exception the novel by one of the most brilliant contemporary Irish writers. Now, in my humble opinion, today's guest is one of the 21st century's best writers, not only in Ireland, but in the world. So I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Nuala O'Connor. Nuala, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Thank you. So the temptation to roll out this quote frequently overcomes me, Nuala. Wherever you go becomes a part of you somehow by Anisha Desai. What do you feel about this quote? Oh, yeah, I definitely think this can be true. I mean, I love to travel. I have itchy feet and places tend to haunt me. But uh, I suppose there are places I've been glad to see the back of, especially if I've had a difficult time in them. But every place, no matter what happens there, has riches to offer you. I've always found that. You know, the way if you're having a hard time with travel, Little things can mean an awful lot, like especially when you're on your own, like just a gorgeous view or a kind waitress. Anything like that can lift your spirits and sort of make you feel better in a place. I'm um, I'm a dog, but I live in Galway. And really, it's only now after 25 years here that I'm tempted to root deeper into Galway. You know, I've always had this sort of pull back to the east, but Actually, the enforced closure of the pandemic has made me fall back in love with Galway more than I have been sort of of late. That's interesting. Okay. And you don't find that you miss Dublin, where you're from originally, more or less since the pandemic? Well, I'm part-time carer for my mother, so I have in the last few months been able to go home just to take care of her. So in that sense, I haven't been completely cut off from it. But I mean, it's not like visiting a place. It's it's going home to the house or whatever and minding my ma. But um, no, like I had been sort of thinking, oh, maybe we'll leave Galway now. 25 years here. It's a bit too long. But and because I travel a lot with my writing. So often at the weekends, I'm not in Galway. So I kind of hadn't been rooting into it at all or getting to know my local area as well as I might have or should have been. So actually being here and doing simple things like gardening, taking walks out on the bog has really made me appreciate it so much more. It seems like you're you're earthed yourself into the area there in the West. That's it. Exactly. Yeah, I think right. it is that, you know, the way they say if you plant a tree in a place, it's really hard to leave it. Yeah. It's sort of like that, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. So what places have become important uh, in your life to de- up to date, Nuala? Well, Dublin, I suppose, my hometown. I'm I'm mad about Dublin. And then Connemara, uh, Olapool in the Highlands of Scotland and Paris. I was kind of obsessed with Paris in my 30s. Um, I love New York. I went for the first time, I think, in 2007 and then I got married there. And it's just one of those places that lives up to its reputation. It's fabulous. Um 
you know, there's places I've spent expanded bits of time in that I would definitely return to. I love re-exploring a place. It's kind of like a reawakening, isn't it? But, you know, you kind of go back to the person who first visited it and you remember mm-hmm. how you were. Like maybe you were younger, you didn't have children then or whatever. You stayed for a spell and then going back is like, it's like visiting a younger self or something. So when I go back to familiar cities like Paris or New York, I tend to rewalk old ground a lot. And then I make mm-hmm. a point of seeking out a new part to co-opt into my sort of, you know, because you can only love a place more by getting to know it more, you know, that sort of way. And then Definitely. I lived in I lived in Scotland for about a year in Ullapool, a fishing village in the Highlands. And I had a life-changing experience there in that I had an unexpected pregnancy and, you know, life-changing utterly. But I always feel Scotland is the only other country in the world that I'd be happy to settle in again. You know, that kind of way. I'd mm-hmm. love to spend chunks of time in other places like the States maybe or Greece or somewhere. But Scotland has a part of my heart, you know. And do you think that's sort of the Celtic collection or is that too obvious, Nuala? I think there's a sort of an ease between Irish and Scottish people. We sort of understand each other. Um, I know there are different people everywhere, but the landscape feels familiar I find a kind of a dynamism in the Scots that's maybe lacking in us. Mm -hmm. But there is that sort of Celtic connection as well, the language and the music and stuff. I I love their music. I'm I'm mad into Julie Fowlis and people like that, you know. So I just feel, I feel good there. When I go there to visit or to do gigs like readings or whatever, I always feel good. I always enjoy it thoroughly, you know, that kind of way. That's fantastic. So just to link into uh, the opening sentence of one of your short stories, Mayo Mayo, um, which is in the book Joyride to Jupiter, this came to you when you were driving back from your friend's house in Burr County, Offaly, to your home in Ballinasloe. And also, Nuala, when you started writing the title story of the same book, you were actually on a long bus trip in Croatia at the time, back in 2013. And the name of the book, Joyride to Jupiter, you said was inspired by an eyeshadow, which I thought was brilliant, uh, that you just bought. Now, what I get from a lot of the the, the reading I've done in preparation for the interview today is the place and movement seem to really help with your inspiration. Is that something you feel is true true for you, Nuala? Absolutely. Yeah, I am one of those people who's obsessed with place. And I think as Irish writers, we are. It's something that other nationalities comment on. I did a, a week-long tour of Italy with a group of Irish writers and the Italians really commented on the sense of place in our work as something that struck them hugely. Um, And I think it is a very Irish thing. It's all this thing, isn't it, really, about owning a bit of land and our piece of the island. You know, I think colonised people are maybe like that. Former Mm -hmm. colonies, people become obsessed with this ownership thing. But I am also a person who loves novelty. I can't sit still for long. I'm not a person who can sit for hours watching telly, for example. Mm -hmm. Always have to be doing, seeing you know, some fresh things are of interest to me. And I know I drove my mother mad when I was a child because I was always whinging about needing new things to see and do. I think that's why she <laughs> fed me books to, to get me out of her hair. But um, oh yeah, James Joyce's biographer, Richard Elman, said that Joyce throve on flurry. And I'm the same, I have to say. Right. You yeah. know, in that sense, I have found these pandemic lockdowns a little bit hard because I'm used to just being able to take off. Um mm-hmm. So being homebound, you know, in a way has been good for me. I've been forced to explore within the 5K around my house. And I have found several beautiful walks, which is fantastic. It's only enriched my life here. 
mm-hmm. but I really can't wait to travel again, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah. it plays hugely into my writing. You know, I'm one of those people that's just lit up by difference in architecture or whatever, cafe culture, scenery, light, like most people probably, you know, but unfamiliar places are of interest to me. I love to even drive through a village in Ireland that I've never seen before. I nearly sit up straighter in the car. I'm like, oh, oh, what's this? You know, <laughs> look at that church. I wonder, is there a nice Holy Mary in there for me to look at? I love Holy Mary. <laughs> so, the, you know, we actually, we can leave our areas again now in Ireland. Um, we're allowed to travel about a bit. So the other day we went for a drive in Roscommon, which is the county next to our own. And mm-hmm. I just felt insanely happy looking at the sun on the furs. It was our one nice day. Seeing these okay. traditional, you know, the traditional cottages <laughs> on Schlieve Bawn, you know, the long cottages, they're like three rooms in a row. Yeah. And just yeah. something about your eyes, your eyes fill with this and your heart fills with it. It's beautiful. It's new. It's pretty. It's Irish. So you feel part of it, but you also feel, well, I feel very buoyed up by the novelty of being somewhere different. So, yeah, that was, that's been my best day so far this year, I think. And you were lucky that it was a sunny one. So do from you've described that in a, in a way, Nula, that it sounds like you're both the observer and also part of the place. Is 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 that kind of what you feel when you go somewhere new? Yeah, absolutely. I um I I'm looking at everything and I think that's it's probably two things. It's probably being an introvert and generally being quite quiet. And then it's also being a writer and always like a little magpie picking at things and jotting things and photographing things like it's always been my way um but also wanting to get to know the why of things you know there's that curiosity I think that I always need to know the reasons for things because I want to know the mm-hmm. whole picture so I'm not just looking at things I guess I'm, I'm asking questions about them and trying to find out so yeah I'm interested in like so research is something that I absolutely adore I love nothing better than an old research book and when I when I'm going places I'm avidly seeing what 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 might I see when I'm there but I don't overdo it because I don't want the thing to be wrecked for me either you know sometimes the the unexpected is the thing we actually enjoy most when we travel somewhere new there is a balance isn't there I think between exactly what you've said there Nula you know on one hand you want to sort of absorb and understand the truth of a, of a place. Yeah. But on the other hand, of course, when you're you're in the midst of researching for a book that you're writing, you also have to have a certain amount of research done to get the fullest out of it. Well, that's it, exactly. I find when I don't, especially research trips, when I don't plan them, I'm sort of, you know, wading through treacle when I get there trying to do the research. I'm much better <laughs> off booking my museums ahead of time and that kind of thing so that, I know I'm going to find out the good stuff there or buy the good books or whatever it is I'm going to do, you know, talk to the people. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great phrase, wading through, wading through treacle. <laughs> so let's let's go back uh, in time just to join sort of some of the dots of the places that you've come to know, you know, during your life and you've absorbed them obviously into your writing and your subconscious. Let's start with, you've mentioned you grew up in Dublin. How did this environment influence you, Nuala? Hugely. I grew up in the Liffey Valley uh, in Dublin, in a place called Mill Lane. Um, hmm. So the opposite bank of the Liffey to the Strawberry Beds. So if anyone's familiar with um, the Strawberry Beds, you look across the river, that's where we grew up. And my parents grew up there too. Um, all the houses on t- there until very recently were rented houses, but my parents got to buy their house a few years ago, which was brilliant for all of us, like a kind of a real routing. So it's a very old house, dates from 1704. So it's a historic place. 
And we as kids treated the river, the fields and the old mills as our playground. Um, and then I set the characters in my first two novels, You and The Closet of Savage Mementos, are from there. And so the landscape mm-hmm. and the river features hugely in those books. Okay. So, yeah, I was kind of obsessed with that place. And when I moved to Galway, I never really saw it as a permanent move. And so for a long time, I always felt, well, I'm going back. And then I had a phase of really wanting to go back. My sister was sick with cancer and died. And I was in my early 30s and all I wanted to do was go home. But And I thought I'd always feel like that. You don't sort of credit yourself with being able to change. But things have changed now. I don't particularly want to go home anymore. You know, I feel like now Galway is my home or my family is my home or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I saw about your sister. I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize that until a recent interview that I read. I think it was in the examiner, a recent interview. Um, and she was, she was somebody who played like as part of your family from what I read in that interview, Nula, she was a big influence in your life when you were younger, wasn't she? Yeah. I mean, she was my best friend, but in the family and she was, it's just kind of ahead of her time. She was a really good photographer. She was a theatre designer and um, influenced my reading hugely and things like that. So she really was like a guide for me and she had great taste and everything. So, yeah, I still miss her. It's terrible, you know, to because I don't because I as I said, I'm very kind of a loner. You know, I don't yeah, have yeah. a lot of very close people. So when one of your closest dies, it's pretty devastating, you know. So, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I can really imagine, obviously. Um, going, going back to, to sort of your upbringing, um, you were from a, a very creative family, from what I've read. You're, you're, both of your parents were creative people. Do you feel this played a part in your own, you know, you've described your curiosity. All of this seems kind of fairly innate to you. Do you think your parents were, impo- were, a, were an important influence in that sense? Absolutely. Like neither of them had an education. Like most people, they left school very early. Um, But they were both amateur actors and painters, big readers. My dad was the local historian. They collected books of Irish interest. Uh, They sold bric-a-brac and antiques at Mother Redcaps Market. So the house was always jammed with paintings and lovely old objects that were just sold out from under you. You know, you'd be sitting on a chair one day, be gone the next, sold. Um, (laughs) And my ma was very uh, crafty, creative. So she was, she made all our clothes. There were seven of us. Can you imagine? And wow. uh, I know, which is crazy <laughs> stuff. And she was always crocheting bedspreads and knitting. Like, I think we had a kind of an old fashioned childhood in a way, you know, quite conservative, yeah. very Catholic. We were sent to the girl's skull. So there was this interest in language and culture. And, you know, in that way, for, that was mm-hmm. my dad. But he was also committed to conservation. So, he was a member of Antashka and the Liffey Valley Defence Alliance. So our weekends were often spent exploring old ruins and visiting his like-minded conservation friends, you know. So we kind of right. we kind of were steeped in all of that sort of thing. We weren't a sporty family, for example. Um, mm-hmm. We were always into music and singing. We were in the musical society. I did ballet and, you know, my sister now is a, Una, is a gifted photographer. She's really good. And my sister Maeve can make anything. And my sister Aoife is a genealogist. So there's all this sort of, um, it's everything to do with. Culture really, isn't it? Yeah, culture. All I sorts of culture. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's like amazing. And tell me something you mentioned quickly, the fact that you would have gone off to the Gale Talk for, you know, for periods of time. And you mentioned your dad being the person who was sort of, um, you know, obviously wanting to keep up the Irish language. T- t- tell us a bit more about that, Nuala, because I think apart from place, obviously, 
language uh, as we as Irish people have is also a huge influence for those of us who try and you know connect with those roots. Yeah, I suppose uh, my dad was probably a bit of an armchair Republican and maybe that was why the push towards Gaelga. I think he liked it in school, um, which mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't, you know, so he was different in that sense. And then when when the Gael Skull system was set up, he sent us there. And it was brilliant because you end up growing up bilingual. So you're doing Irish. Everything is through Irish in school. Everything's true English at home. So you do get to know two languages quite well. Um, and then, you know, I just... I fell in love with Irish, I think, on day one, just loved the sounds of it, the words of it, the way it was better at expressing certain things. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great way to grow up. So I've sent my own kids to the Girl Skulls as well. Um, oh, did you? Basically because of that, the cultural thing yeah. in them is so strong, you know. Yeah. There is a sort of a vein of conservatism that runs through the Irish language that I don't like now, you know. I haven't mm-hmm. liked for a long number of years. But I'll take what's great from it and, and yeah, love that, yeah. you know. I would agree. I, I, I spent a year in Colossia and Arena. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, the same. Yeah, the same thing, age 10. So you have that kind of bilingual thing going on. And if you read up about what language does in the synapses in the brain, I think it's a, an interesting one, even just from that perspective, you know, yeah, how it affects yeah. the brain, you know. But um, listen, going going back to your youth again, in an interview in uh, Banshee Lish, you said, I was always writing poetry as a kid and I came second in a national poetry competition judged by Michael Harnett when I was nine with a poem in Irish about traveller children. There are letters from me to my sister saying, when I'm a famous novelist. Now, Nuala, it really seems to me like you had almost like an inner knowing of your life path. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I was always writing poems and stories, terrible stuff, you know, when I was a kid, (laughs) reading, I guess, was my real joy. I was an outdoorsy kid because we had those fields and all as a playground. And we were always in or on the river, grubbing around on rafts and in the fields and all this building huts. But I loved books with a passion and my ma fed that love brilliantly. Um, You know, we'd go to sales and work as well and we'd hoover up everything on the books table to bring home, delighted with ourselves. So it was a great (laughs) sort of wide range of books in the house. but honestly, for a working class kid, I thought being a writer was just the stuff of dreams. I really didn't think it was possible. Mm-hmm. I'd never met a writer. They seemed very lofty, very posh to me, which a lot of them were, I guess. You know, it is a very privileged sort of thing to be. Um, I suppose when you look at it from the outside as a kid or as a young person or whatever, you don't really know what needs to be in place in order to pursue this. I know now, but um So I was still scribbling away when I moved to Galway in my mid-twenties and I finally took a writing workshop. One of my colleagues in the theatre I worked in was a writer and he said, why don't you just, you know, stop hiding the stuff away. Take a workshop if you're interested in writing, which hadn't occurred to me, which seems really stupid. But anyway, I went and I met other aspiring writers and it was great. We formed a group, we shared writing opportunities, we bolstered each other up and that was the start of it all then. That's fantastic. So going going back to before that happened, obviously somebody who encouraged you in your 20s, at the time you were writing as a, as a kid, did anybody in the family kind of like yourself think that maybe you could be a writer in, in later life? Or was it, as you sort of described, something that seemed, you know, too out of reach for, for the background that you felt you were coming from? Yeah, I just don't think it's something that... Um 
that looks like a possibility. Like my ma wanted us all to get permanent pensionable jobs, you know, go into the civil <laughs> service. I did all the interviews, the guards, the civil service, everything, you know, um, and then did Irish as a degree, like kind of, God, not very handy, really vocationally. But mm-hmm. the just the whole creative sp- sphere was where I wanted to be. And every job I took, whether it was in a writer's center or a bookshop or a library, was always about books. It was sort of inevitable. I mean. I am lucky in that my husband has a proper job and so he can support us. But you, we live here because it's cheap to live here, cheaper than Dublin. You know, right. so you, you have to adapt your life to your means, you know, and that's, the, yeah. you know, I, I kind of, it breaks my heart when I go into the MA in writing students to talk to them about a career, inverted commas, in writing, because it's a very, very rare and privileged person who can be a full-time writer and earn their money from writing alone. Most of us are doing mentoring, we're reviewing, we're teaching. So you're doing all this side hustle just so that you can stay doing this. And it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a lot of admin and it's a lot of time not spent at your desk, but it's absolutely necessary unless you have another job that's, you know, either connected or unconnected with writing. So it is, it seems to be getting more difficult because the industry is obsessed with debut authors. They are not in the business of supporting people into longevity unless you have a huge hit at the start, which most people don't. So it's a very, it's an uneven playing field. I could rant for ages about the publishing industry, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned, I mean, we're sort of, we're digressing slightly, but I'm I'm, I'm really happy to do that. One of the things that you mentioned is mentoring. And is that something that you do as paid work or what's the story with that? Yeah, it's paid work. So there's a wonderful advocacy agency for writers in Ireland now called Words Ireland. And they, set up these mentoring programs specifically to support writers like me uh, and to support new writers. So it's win-win and they Mm. pay us. I think they're supported by the Arts Council. And then similarly, the Irish Writers' Centre has a mentoring program and I I mentor on that as well. So people can apply to be your mentee, essentially. And I take on X amount of um, mentees per year. And I try not to overdo it because all the, you know, lovely as it is to help new writers, you know, you do still have to just concentrate on your own work. You have to prioritise. And I do. I'm good at that. I'm good at carving out my time. I've been doing this full time for like, I don't know, 17 years or something. So I'm kind of, yeah, I have myself well set up. I know what I'm at, you know. Yeah. And I think I read in, in one of the interviews that you're, you're in a sort of a, what are they calling it now? The shed office scenarios yeah (laughs) that lots of people have had to adapt to not only writers obviously since you know since the situation with the pandemic how is that working out for you as as a kind of an environment to to work and to write oh I love it I absolutely love it but I'm such a weirdo at the same time I I love nothing better than getting out of my bed and sitting at the desk at the end of my bed rather than hassling myself this sounds terrible privilege nonsense but (laughs) the shed can be quite cold and so in the winter I sort of look out at it and go oh I don't want to freeze to death while I write today I'm just going to stay here in my bedroom you know um that's that's understandable yeah, yeah, I'm back out there now yeah. and it's lovely. And I may have to just resign myself to the fact that like it is um, cold and it's best used for maybe six months of the year. But it's a lovely space. Right. And uh, I just I feel so lucky and happy when I'm in there. And it's the best place to write a book. The admin can be done anywhere, but it's the best place. I wrote Nora in there mostly and I'm writing my new one in there now. And uh, it's just they're my happiest time sitting at my desk mm. in my little cabin, you know. 
you might you might send me some photos of that for for when from when we yeah. broadcast this so we yeah. can I'd love to see that writing environment so listen just going back to you know we're back in your youth family holidays with obviously quite a large family did you actually get away as a family at all we did I mean we didn't have much in terms of stuff we never had the latest stuff you know I'm not saying we well, weren't well looked after we were but one thing my parents always did was bring us on holidays. So their choice of holiday spots was usually like Balivorna in Cork, more mm-hmm. Belga, uh, or Connemara. And so really the landscape of Connemara is etched into me. And nowadays I go there with my family to stay in Clifton for or and or and, you know, it's now the wild Atlantic way, as we know. And But the, yeah. just the sea and the light and the mountains, it's incomparable. Um, I know, I know. I have the same. I have the absolute same. And as soon as you said that, that makes a lot of sense now, because in the first few pages, I think it is, of Nora, uh, you you already bring in the the Mam Turk Mountains, I remember. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I mean, essentially, I probably moved to Galway 25 years ago because of those happy childhood holidays in Spiddle and Carrow. Yeah. And a a picture maybe that was like the film of, um, you know, Walter Mackin's novel, The Flight of the Doves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was all golden hatch cottages and smiley grannies and hunky uncles and blue, blue sea. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think I kind of had that image of myself maybe in a thatch cottage with some glorious Connemara man. It didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> I ended up on a housing estate in Galway, but never mind. <laughs> <clears throat> I've moved out the county now, actually. So really, we're two hours in Clifton, but we still, you know, it's sort of where we go when we want to just... right totally unwind you know it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing part of the world is, and yeah. I, I also have a childhood connection with it so which which of these places you know Connemara I know straight away of course appears in in Nora um where else uh, uh what are the stories are you bringing in Connemara into probably a lot of your writing I imagine uh, yeah it does turn up I have it in um there's a short story I wrote about Ted Hughes and his partner Asia Wevel when they came to Connemara. He did go there with Sylvia Plath as well, but uh, my mm-hmm. story concerns Asia. You know, so I could read a little tiny bit of that for that'd you be, if you like. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. So this is Asia's voice. Um, she's an interesting person. She was German-Israeli and she had an affair with Ted and then Ted left Sylvia for Asia. And then, as we know, Sylvia took her own life. And then later Asia did too. So extremely sad. This is her when they come to Ireland. The Ireland we had chosen was a land apart. It was a place of reliquaries and bright furs, stone walls and emptiness. Black-faced sheep decorated the roadsides in languid huddles. There were more of them than people. The sea surrounded our headland like a comforting pair of arms. Irish women, I thought, pretended they didn't want to be noticed but got annoyed when no one paid them any attention. I watched them on the street in Roundstone when we went there and in the pubs. They were dowdy and big-jawed and seemed to brood and breed. God, they made babies and the babies were as plain as themselves. Irish men, though, I found handsome in a flinty way. Every few days I cycled the rutted roadway to the local shop leaving Shura to play with the others in the garden and Ted writing at the table by the window. The sea spread out beyond the stone walls, shushing like a lullaby, and the Connemara ponies romped solid and wild in the fields. The old woman in the shop was called Breege, 
and she had a grand air of scepticism. Over her dress she wore a dun shop coat that was radiant with long use. There you are, she would say when I came through the door, as if I was expected but not altogether welcome. So that's poor Asia in Connemara. <laughs> wow. Yeah, fantastic. Filled with, I, I, I suppose one of the things I love about your writing is there's sort of such depth of, of uh, observation and description, but at the same time, there's a, like this cheeky injection of a sense of humour in parts. Yeah, I love black humour, I have to say. Um, yeah. I was really pleased. I had decided to write a book of funny stories, but that didn't quite right, work out. <laughs> uh, before Joyride to Jupiter, I was thinking, why don't I write a book of funny stories, you know, which is kind of the hardest task to set yourself. It's sort of ludicrous. But actually, when it was reviewed um, in the Irish Times, Human Barricat reviewed it, and he really commented on the humour, like the dark humour in a lot of the stories because yeah. they're not about easy subjects. So I was really pleased about that. That was kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, one of, it's one of the qualities that I, I absolutely love about your writing. Now, going back to uh, your formative years, you know, when you've read out that passage, Lincoln to Connemara, the, the powers of observation or something else, do you think, Nuala, that even though you, you didn't think that you would become a writer in the future, do you think that your parents' love of acting and painting would have helped you connect to, you know, observing the world more fully? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because I've writer friends who kind of didn't grow up in bookish households and they're doing perfectly well, thanks very much. But, you know, I, I suppose I credit um, all the kind of weird art in the house. And also, I suppose, being in churches and, just that thing that of my parents loving old objects and revering them and then selling them off like they don't matter, you know. Um, it did give me a certain visual sense. And also like my two of my sisters especially are brilliant visual artists and one is a photographer. There's just this visual thing that is going on, this aesthetic thing all the time with us, you know. And mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely like, because I have one whole book that's almost solely about art. That's uh, my short story collection, Nude. So it's okay. about um, it's about naked bodies in art, but naked bodies in life as well. Um, and then, yeah, like all, all the stories I have set, say, in Paris and Rome, Dublin, New York, Prague, Brazil, you know, New Hampshire in England, Catherine in Spain, all of these different stories are from my observations of being in these places, you know, looking around, absorbing really getting into the texture of a place. And that's why now probably I write so much historical stuff because I love recreating the texture of not just a place, but an era. So yeah, very immersive kind of, I want the reader to feel immersed. I read a story or rather a novel recently set in Paris and there was no feeling of being in Paris in it, which astonished me. I thought, well, really? why bother, you know? Um, I think you re it's so important to recreate the place for people. And I was very pleased with some of the reviews in Nora that people said, they could feel Trieste, they could feel, you know, Paris and Rome, because that's what I wanted to do, transport. Oh, you really could, you really could. And not not only, you know, this is one of the wonders of your writing, Nula, not only do you feel the place, but you feel the place during that particular period that the, that the work is set in, you know. Good, good. Job done. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So listen, just going back quickly to the Irish language, um, you mentioned in an interview in Banshee Lit, when we were teenagers, my husband and his friends gave me the nickname Peg. Yeah. So that says it all really. Now, for the for people who aren't from Ireland, let me just jump in with Peg is like a classic story that 
certain people of a certain age group that yourself and myself fall into, I think, Nuala, that we would have all read it, wouldn't we, at school? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you went on to do your BA in, in early and modern Irish in, in Trinity College Dublin, plus a, an MA in translation studies in DCU. How do you feel that the Irish language, as well as being Irish, has actually affected your work, Nuala? I think it's huge for me. You know, there's that thing of being called peg as a teenager, as a slag. But, you know, even later in my 20s, when I was meeting other newer people, they were always saying things to me like, oh, you're real Irish. I did use the Irish form of my surname and I still do in my real life. I've reverted to Mm -hmm. O'Connor for writing because I'm published in America now and it's just easier, you know. Um, Yeah, I do feel very Irish and I know nationality is an accident of birth, etc. But I feel very connected to our to our landscapes, to our vernacular architecture, to our customs and traditions. I'm just deeply interested in it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and sort of moved by it, maybe even as I get older and I go to, you know, visit an old abbey or something. You really have that feeling of reaching back through time to people who are here and maybe taught in similar ways to us or maybe didn't. And it's just, I just love all of that. I, I do like being Irish, I have to say, and not in a kind of a caricature aren't we gas way, you know, because that kind of irritates me as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, also, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but just a kind of a, that we have such depth that we love to ignore. We're hell bent on being the same as everyone in the UK and America, whereas I think we need to value ourselves more and what we're genuinely good at, which is, hospitality and, um, you know, storytelling. And expression. I think, yeah, yeah expression. exactly. Yeah. And humor. And, you know, we're not good at other things, but we're trying to learn. But I just think we're thrown off too easily all that's good about us. You know, there's no reason for Dublin to be the next Manhattan. There's no reason for it at all. Let it be itself. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read Ulysses last year for the first time with a group. Brilliant way to read it because you get you have so much support and extra information to help you along. Yeah. And God, it made me fall in love with Dublin all over again. I'm dying to go up and do a good old Ulysses walking tour for myself and, you know, this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and Joyce so, had that absolute love for Ireland. All his work was a love letter to Ireland while being bang-wide to the faults of us as a nation, you know. But again, still honouring that, you know, and honouring our humour and everything. It's an incredibly funny book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the 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 word you mentioned, depth, was actually in my own mind, literally, as you you were answering that last that last question. Your own writing, though, Nula, it actually explodes with like deeply insightful, often kind of humorous descriptions of contemporary Ireland. Do you have a personal favourite that you would like to read out for us? <laughs> I suppose this thing about when people say that you don't quite know what they mean. I have like, there's a, I have a, f- well, I'm not going to preface it with saying it's funny in case people don't find it funny at all, but <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my attempted funny ones. So I'll just read, um, I'll read probably just the first page of this. So it's called, it's a travel story. It's called Napoli Abu. And it's about Tara who ends up going on holidays with her sister's friend because her sister's gone, you know, just, just bring her with you kind of thing, thinking that everybody mm-hmm. needs a companion when they travel, which they don't necessarily. So for anyone who doesn't know Irish, Abu means, it sort of means like go. So if you were to translate Napoli, Abu, the title of the story, you might say go Napoli or go Naples. Okay. So this is it. Just give you the first page. Fuck knows how I ended up agreeing to go to Naples with a spinster. 
not even my spinster, but a stray of my sister's, offered up to me as a solution to my singlehood, a partner in the pathetic. Beatrice is on her own too, Clodagh said. She's into the kind of stuff you like, you know, art, old runes, all that. She'd love to go to Italy. I'm grand going on my own, I said. Ah, go on. Poor Beatrice is lonely. She could do it a break. So we sat side by side, two unbridled yokes, scrabbling for things to say, though the airplane hadn't yet reached 10,000 feet. Beatrice sneezed crazily as the plane climbed. Summer cold, I asked, though I couldn't care less. Allergies, she says. There's nothing I hate more than the allergy brigade, with their I can't eat this and I can't tolerate that and does this have gluten? Snot spewed hankies and garlands around them. The only thing worse is a vegan. Jesus wept, I was surely headed into the longest week of my life. I fiddled with my iPod, thinking I could block her out with a consoling waft of Adele. But even I knew that would come off rude, so I tried some conversation. Did you read about your man, I said, who fried his wife's placenta and ate it? Beatrice frowned, and I noticed again the colander shake of freckles across her cheeks. A waste on someone so plain. Or the other fella who had liposuction and made soup from the fat. Soap, I mean. Lemon-scented soap, imagine. I heard a chap on the radio, Beatrice said, who cooked his own hip and ate it. He said it tasted of goat. Ah, no, I said, that's just mad, isn't it? I grinned at her, settled back in my seat and let the airplane's thrum wash through me. Beatrice mightn't be too bad after all. It could even turn out grand. <laughs> That's the pair of them as they start off on their journey. It doesn't really turn out grand, but there you are. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, I love it. So listen, although Ireland is central to you, obviously that's very, very clear, both as a writer and, and as a person, Nula, your research into places, as we touched on uh, when talking about Nora and people, is incessantly inspirational, it seems. Now, in a superb interview with the editor of The Lonely Crowd, John Lavin, you said, I went to Brazil for an Irish studies conference in 2012, and all the time I was thinking about Elizabeth Bishop and what it must have been like for her to live there. Now, I'm just curious, Nuda, does this happen to you in most places when you travel abroad? Yeah, I have to say I love being an alien in an alien culture. Um, and Brazil was fascinating, the tiny little bit of it that I did see. So I do think of the other outsiders who've been in a place before me and how they f must have fared there. Like I was thinking about Bishop and her relationship with Lota and the house they built and all of that. Um, and when I went to Trieste to research Nora, I could feel Nora ahead of me, you know, she was sort of there around every corner, walking the streets before me. And I really love those ghostly presences in a place. And you know the way Europe hasn't changed hugely in a hundred years. So it's really easy to feel your ancestors walking beside you on those streets. I love it. It kind of moves me. I love anything old or seeping with history. So yeah, I tend to... I tend to want to know, I'll always try and find out what, was there any Anglophone books set in these places that I can read before I go? Or is there a translation of a good local book that will put me in the mood for a place? So yeah, I love doing that. I think it's important what you read. Mind you, <laughs> I was reading a slave narrative on a sun holiday one time and it just nearly broke me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be careful with your reading material. Yeah, you do. I went I went actually to the island Ile uh, de la Gore, mm -hmm. which is off Dak Dakar in Senegal, and that they used oh, to ship the slaves from there. 
And that was so creepy. That was as if the essence, exactly what you've spoken about, like in the European places that you've mentioned, but it's as if the essence was still lingering there centuries on, you know? Just devastating. Like I saw a documentary about a leper colony that was on one of the islands in Venice. Mm-hmm. And like even from watching it on the television, you can feel the just haunted nature of the place seeping into your pores awful you know and I think those places and that's why it's important when you're writing about a place to go because atmosphere is everything you know a place that you might conjure in your head as being really light and positive you could get there and find it just really dark and strange absolutely and that's a good thing to know it is absolutely now the same interview John Lavin was an excellent interview I have to say um you also said I'm way more interested in subtext than gut spilling from characters and in creating small contained worlds rather than sprawling spell it all out ones how do you go about creating those small contained worlds Mm, john is a great editor he edits that um journal and he has a small press as well he's an irish guy living in wales um i can these small worlds are important to me because i want the reader to feel like she or he is the character that they're reading about so I think sometimes with editors, they don't trust readers. They have this idea of readers that to me seems wrongheaded. Not all editors, I'm going to qualify it there, right? But I've had experiences <laughs> with editors, okay? I have a lovely editor at the moment. I should just mention that right now. Um, <laughs> but I think that we should always trust readers to get things in fiction. Trust them to do a bit of work, to understand subtle hints, you know, I really don't like spoon feeding readers and I don't think editors and publishers should find that necessary. I just don't. There's a kind of a homogenizing a culture that I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. and it really gets my goat. I don't think everybody has to know everything. You know, I don't think everything in a novel or story has to be palatable, that characters have to be likable, that things have to be monocultural so that these apparently uninformed readers can understand everything. You know, when I was writing a Victorian novel set in Victorian London, uh, one of the editors, because many, <clears throat> I had a sort of a team of editors on that, and one of them suggested that we take out all the Victorian food because people wouldn't understand what it was. And I was like, I don't care whether mm. they understand or not. You know, I'm building a world here. This is what people ate then. So they're eating it in my book. I'm not going to have them eating gruel just so your supposedly silly readers will understand. Readers are bright. Mm. They can understand hints and subtleties. They can understand, you know, things that are not easy to digest. And some readers, many readers love doing that hard bit of work. And anyway, there's always Google. They can go and find out stuff. (laughs) You know, people are not unwilling to do a bit of work. And I think there is a sort of a move towards, let's make this easy. And I say a firm no to that. I'm not going to bend my language or my content because you think readers can't cope readers can mm-hmm. cope you know just, yeah yeah i i would tend to absolutely 300 percent agree with that and if you think about <laughs> uh, visual art that we've talked talked about because of your family background and so on if you think about visual art particularly if we're looking at like surreal art or anything that's you know like a little bit not so obvious in various ways yeah part of the joy of art is the observer actually observing and getting their own take and what one person might get from it might be slightly different or very different to another. And isn't that part of the actual collaboration between the artist or the writer uh, or the viewer and the reader? Absolutely. I mean, 
people always somehow want to know the meaning of things. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, what does it mean to you? Decide what it means to you and that'll be the meaning. It's like when people are always asking me about sequels to my novels. Oh, will there be a sequel to that? And you're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now you have to look at the ending, trusting that I gave you that ending in good faith, that I'm leaving you at the point where I want to leave you. We're saying goodbye to these characters here because that's what I have decided to do. And now it's up to you to write the rest of the story in your head if that's what you need to do. But I can't tell you what it is because I don't know, you know. And people look Mm. at you like you're bonkers. They expect you to know. I don't know. (laughs) And honestly, I kind of don't care either. (laughs) 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 Um, Those characters are left hanging in some kind of ether and that's where they live, you know. And I think that's, there is one of my novels I'd like to write a sequel to and I may do that. It's The Closet of Savage Mementos, the one set in Scotland. because I love that set of characters. I'm just basically because they're both the mother and the daughter are versions of me. So one okay. one bit yeah. is the sort of narcissist artist mother and the other is the person trying to be a good person, which is the daughter. And I, they're, they're both sides of me and I'm interested in these people. I like them. I like their spikiness. I like that they're not very likable. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I might go back to them. But in general, no, I'm, I'm not interested in sequels or in explaining things to people. You know, especially short stories, they are more work. And I think that's maybe why they're not 100% popular with general, shall we say, readers, because they don't want to do the work. But mm-hmm. people who love, people who love a bit of work as they read, you know, or who love picking hints and sub- subtleties. Like a lot of people have found a lot of the Joyce references in Nora and they're very delighted with themselves because they know Joyce. And then mm. people who don't know Joyce don't see them, but that's fine too, you know. So yeah. it's like, it's a kind of a game you're playing with yourself when you write your, you're writing in things that are almost like in jokes and you're delighted with yourself and sure look at it, it makes you happy on a given day as you're writing <laughs> alone in your cabin, you know, and if someone spots it, yippee. And if they don't, it just doesn't matter, you know, you know? So yeah, I, I really, I object to the homogenization of culture big time. We are different and we do have different cultures. We should be proud of those cultures and we should be supported in those cultures, you mm-hmm. know? travelers in this country are not supported well and it's shameful you know it really kind of breaks my heart seeing what goes on here um as if they're not as important as any set of people that are in this country it really annoys me but there's a good new um Irish traveler Oni Javardun has written a collection of stories so that's brilliant to see we need more of that Right. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Now, let's talk about themes, Nula, that are important to you. Like one, the obvious, one of the obvious ones comes that you're really brilliant at shining a light on women that may otherwise be overlooked in favour of men. So you've mentioned just just the traveller community there as well just now. What are the themes that are closest to your heart at the moment? Oh, same as always, Jackie, women's lives <laughs> and their challenges. <laughs> uh, the challenge of being a woman in, in any era. Motherhood, which can be tricky too, because we're not all madly loving and giving. Some of us are ambivalent mothers. Um, you know, we can veer between the two on any given day. Mm-hmm. Love love under pressure I'm interested in because it's not easy to love or be loved. The human condition generally, how we negotiate ourselves and other people. I'm interested in friendship hugely because I find mm-hmm. it tricky myself. I'm, I'm a very devoted friend, so I get very confused when people are not devoted in return. Um, 
survival, I guess. And then art and how it's made. I'm hugely interested in that. I, I write a lot about arty people. And the other biggest thing maybe, because this is hugely on my mind as I go into my 50s and, you know, move further into them, how to make a pleasing life. What does a life mean? And, you know, the push and what pull. A question. Of, yeah, what a big question. Pull, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm 51 now and I'm really looking back and just wondering, was my ma, was my ma right? Should I just have done a secretarial course and got a bloody good job? <laughs> you know, because and, and you would have been yeah. utterly bored, obviously. Obviously, off my head. Yeah. I worked in an office yeah. for about six months and I nearly lost me lunch. You know, it was just, a, <laughs> but you know, you, you at 51, you start looking back and reassessing and wondering. And obviously I'm very grateful for all the opportunities writing brings to my life. And like they, it does, you know, apart from the fact I'm in my happy place when I write, I make friends through it. I mm -hmm. get to travel a lot with it. I get to meet great people. Um, and those are the bonuses, you know, it's fantastic. So, yeah, like I suppose touching on a lot of the themes, uh, they would resonate with me also. Um, touching on, yeah, what it is, a good life, looking back at the age of 51, and in my case, I'm 53. I don't like to use the word proud, but are you not a little bit kind of at least content with the amazing writing that you've done, even for the joy it gives yourself, as you mentioned? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I'm delighted yeah. that I took this path and stuck with it and made my peace with the kind of lack of material side of things because you realize quite soon that material stuff is a load of nonsense anyway. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We can feed ourselves. We have a warm home. We have a home, you know. So yeah, absolutely kind of checking my privilege a lot the last few years and <clears throat> realizing I'm, I have, I have everything I need, you know. And mm -hmm. that's brilliant. And like, you know, so I say for my sister, for example, didn't get to see her daughter grow up. Um, I have had that privilege, you know. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. I am, I am very, I don't know, pride I find hard, probably because I was brought up so Catholic and, you know, <laughs> all of that was bet out of me. <laughs> um, yeah. I sometimes feel quietly happy about certain things. There's certain stories of mine that I love. They're not the ones usually that other people love, but, you know, I have attachments to certain of my characters and that, and that pleases mm -hmm. me. And then, mm -hmm. you know, some of my biographical fiction that I've written about people like Emily Dickinson, Belle Bilton and Nora Barnacle. I love my communion with them. I'm proud of bringing them to other people and, and making them known and, and bigging them up the way they deserve to be bigged up, up because they were always in the shadow of other people or in the shadow of, with Emily, for example, her so-called mad reclusiveness. It wasn't mad at all. It was necessary for her art, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm proud of what I've done for them. Yeah, I mean, really, really, you, you bring these women to life in a way that without your work wouldn't happen at all, you know. Yeah, yeah. Though apparently they were given out about my book, Miss Emily is on the Leaving Cert, and somebody was on Joe Duffy giving out about it yesterday because there's a scene of sexual violence in it. A very coy scene, I'd have to say. Um, you know, I really made it so that the reader wouldn't be traumatised by it. Mm -hmm. You know, because it is quite a traumatic thing to write about. But um, no, apparently somebody object objects. <laughs> I should okay. look that's yeah. the problem if it's on the if it's on the leaving search, which is you know which is a good thing, obviously, generally speaking. But that's going to draw yeah extra extra eyes, isn't it, on onto exactly. the 
yeah, to the subject matter. We don't matter. need to protect our young people in that way. We need to introduce them to the opposite, all sides of life and, and equip them. Yeah. Not just shield them. That's ridiculous, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So your latest book, Nora, that we touched on earlier, mm. that was published in, in January 2021. It's received numerous, tremendous reviews. Going back to the New York Times uh, in that review, but this fictional Nora is entirely convincing in her raw sensuality, etc. Her stubborn determination, her powerful sense of grievance and her inability to stop loving a deeply erratic, wildly manipulative, yet enormously talented man. Now, back before the pandemic, when you were obviously doing your research, and you mentioned this earlier on, you were able to travel to Trieste, Zurich and Paris and walk in Nora's footsteps. And how did you feel during during these times? How, how was each place maybe different to you as you walked in her in her footsteps? Yeah, I'd never been to Trieste before, so that was a revelation. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not called the jewel of the Adriatic for nothing. It's stunning. And kind of to outside tourists, sort of little known about, you know. So it's this beautiful, white, bright, light city, you know, really um, affordable to stay in. We had a lovely little apartment. Now, I get support from the Arts Council for these trips, mm -hmm. which I'm hugely grateful for. Um, and I had a residency in Paris for a month with the Centre Culturelle Irlandaise. And that was marvellous. I, you know, basically followed Joyce and Nora's steps around the whole of Paris every afternoon. I'd write in the morning and walk in the afternoon. So, yeah, it's a very exhilarating thing to be able to do this. I felt euphoric. I felt connected to them. I felt excited. I was transported back in time. You know, there's that real sense of reaching your hand back to the real people you're writing about. It's like, you really feel like you're communing with them. You know the way we were saying earlier that Europe hasn't changed much. Houseman's mm -hmm. Paris was Houseman's Paris then. It was sparkly and newish then, but it's still physically quite the same, you know? Yeah. Because they yeah. have great planning laws, unlike Ireland, <laughs> which, <laughs> which lets everything fall apart and just doesn't care a jot, it seems, for our vernacular culture, which drives me crazy. Um, so, yeah, in Paris, I spent every afternoon trotting the streets, retracing their movements, going to their haunts. It was really kind of magical. And I did it on my own, which was the best way to do it, because you mm -hmm. can absorb things better alone when you travel, can't you? You're just more Definitely. spongy. And I didn't, because I was writing the novel there, I didn't actually keep a journal. I normally do keep a journal when I travel, but I'd be so exhausted from my morning's writing. I didn't feel like writing more. So I would take photographs instead. So I have a very sort of a visual diary of that time. Um, you know, just gorgeous. And of course, you just feel like you're, you know, a Parisian in Paris, even though you're not. But it was just lovely. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, you have so many amazing quotes in Nora. Um, but you, you just touched on Paris, obviously, in a fair bit of detail there. One example that really resonated with me was Paris is one of those cities that seems like it's always existed. The ground of it is firm underfoot. It's a place content in itself, sure-hearted. And I, I just adore that. I mean, I know Paris not as well as you do, but also I know it quite well. If you had to leave Ireland, Nuala, would Paris be a, like an obvious choice for, you know, a, such a creative person as yourself? Or would you prefer to live elsewhere only if you couldn't stay in Ireland? Yeah, I think um, 
I first was in Paris as a 16 year old. I was in the Scouts and we went to Switzerland overland and we stopped in Paris and it was glorious. I remember just thinking it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my life. I hadn't been anywhere much apart from England before that. I think in my 30s, I became obsessed with it, um, writing about it, visiting it, because like Ryanair and cheap hotels were a total boon to me. I could bring my little family abroad really cheaply. <laughs> I was just, yeah. I loved, I've yeah. always loved Ryanair for that. It afforded people like me who don't have a lot of money to go places and you'd get a hotel with a room for four for less than 100 euros. So it was great. Like, yeah. But I do feel now it's the second most expensive city in the world to live in after Singapore, I believe. And I feel it's just a pipe dream to actually live there now. But I'm very happy to visit. Um, I'd love to get another residency at the Centre Culturel eventually sometime. The only other country I think I said earlier that I would actually consider moving myself to is Scotland. I just love it. I love the humour and openness and down to earth nature of the people. I like their dynamism. You know, so. Yeah, if I had to go somewhere else, that's where I'd go. But truly, 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 I'd like to live in a green place in Ireland with water nearby. Very simple stuff. You know, I, I'm not. I think when I was younger, I thought maybe I would live abroad again. Like I had worked in Germany and Switzerland in my teens in hotels and in my early 20s. But um, I don't know, there's something about having aging parents and <laughs> aging yourself, indeed, <laughs> that makes you <laughs> that makes you kind of. It's not that my adventures are over. It's just, I'd say my living adventures, maybe. I don't know. Never say never. Look at Oh, never say never. Not yeah. at all. I, I, I've I, sort of focused in on what you said about a green place with water mm-hmm. uh, beside it. And one of the topics that's come up with, uh, with other guests that I've interviewed is, uh, in your case, you mentioned, the, obviously, the river in that area of Dublin where you grew up. Um, is the influence of water on creativity, is that something that is a theme for you also? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, growing up beside the river, like the weir, we could hear the weir at night. And now I stay in my mads because I'm minding her part time. I'm a part time carer. She has dementia. So I can hear the weir again at night. It's so strange. It really brings you back to your childhood. Yeah. I remember Mike McCormick launched my first uh, collection of short stories way back in 2004. And he said he nearly drowned reading it because there was so much water in it. Um, yeah, obsessed with water, you know, and probably yeah. because I grew up beside it and was always in it or on it or, you know, looking at mm. it, thinking about it. I was there the other day and walk and I went for a walk on my own. Um, my sister stayed with my ma for a few minutes so I could just get some air and, uh, oh, yeah, just the river again. I'm obsessed with it. There's something so seductive about it. So, yeah, a green place near water. It can be any kind of water. I don't care if it's a pond. <laughs> I'd love just water <laughs> near me somehow, you know. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Now, your current project is Anne Bonnie. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Nuala, please? Mm, loads of water in that. Uh, it's hilarious to be writing about a sailor when you don't sail yourself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm having to do a lot of research about boats. Um, yeah. It's kind of usually not great to talk about a work in progress, but... And I had a really bad week with it last week. I just got kind of... I got the sort of two-thirds of the way through the novel Collywobbles, you know? Like, it's all mm-hmm. crap. I hate it. You know, <laughs> this happens every time. So, you know, I had to remind myself about that. So I basically, mm-hmm. Anne was um, an 18th century Irish pirate and she was from Kinsale and Cork. And she ended up on New Providence Island in the Caribbean. So fiery, feisty, interesting Irish woman 
a delight to write. There isn't much of a paper trail, so I'm very free to invent here, which I love. Um, so I'm heading mm-hmm. to Cork this summer on a research trip. I have it already booked. And I'll go around where she lived and I'll go around to the maritime museums and stuff like that. And COVID-19 permitting, I have also very optimistically worked booked flights to New Providence in the Caribbean for November. So I'm crossing fingers I'll be able to go. I want to see where Anne lived. I want to go to the museums. I've never been to that part of the world. So yeah, hurricane season in November, but sure look. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's all changing. It's all changing so much now. Anyhow, that hopefully that all works out for you. Um, Now, for those of us who want to sort of uh, connect with the area that's like your area these days and talking about again once again new to like hopefully COVID allowing us all to travel safely again and mm. um, if we're going to visit Galway yeah where would you recommend in terms of somewhere to stay to begin with okay so I love Clifton mm-hmm. I love many parts of Connemara but I just love Clifton so if you have a few bob the Abbey Glen Castle Hotel on the Sky Road right beside uh-huh. Clifton Town is a lovely old fashioned family friendly hotel, sort of posh ish. You know, they have a parrot in the hall. They greet you with, if you drink, they greet you with a Prosecco reception. It's very, very nice. I, I thought it was lovely. Um, my husband treated me to a weekend there. Um, otherwise, if you're going to Clifton, go out to the end of the Sky Road and stay in the Rockmount House, which is a B&B overlooking the Atlantic. Okay. At the far end of the Sky Road, and it yeah. has its own private cliff path that they have made. It is wondrous. We stayed there last summer when the lockdown lifted for five minutes. We dashed out Clifton. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the Rockmount House B and B in beyond Clifton on the Sky Road, lovely, friendly welcome. So, okay. What about sites around that area? Where what would be sort of not to be missed around that area? Yeah, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but Kylemore Abbey, which is this stunning lakeside mansion with a Victorian walled garden. It has a tiny neo-Gothic church. It's on a lake. It's Instagram heaven. There's a place where you can eat and there's a gift shop and it's just beautiful. You know, good food, proper food. Um, yeah, that would be something wonderful to see. Okay. And what about, um, that's, that's somewhere that I know also from my childhood. What about, what about any sort of slightly unusual or, or eccentric kind of experiences or places? Yeah, I'm not hugely adventurous because I'm not sporty, but something lovely to do that is quite different is you can take a cruise in a catamaran across Killery Fjord and it's Ireland's uh-huh. only fjord. Uh, it's a nine, mm-hmm. nine mile long inlet and the views are stunning. You know, the cliff faces and because it's enclosed, it's just really eerie and beautiful. So that's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, Killery, Killery is absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what about restaurants? Any any favourites? Yeah, the Sea Hare in Cleggan. Um, it's a pop-up, but it's kind of popping up a lot. <laughs> so ah. if you're, yeah, it's brilliant. If you're into fish, um and cake. They do great cakes. And you can sit outside and watch the Inish Boffin Ferry go in and out. So that's in Cleggan and Connemara. It's about, I suppose. I remember, I remember the sea hare. I don't remember the name of the, the of the woman, but they actually very kindly offered to bring something up to my dad in Dublin during lockdown last year. I'm telling you what, they're lovely people. On Twitter, lovely. on Twitter. Can you believe it? Yeah, they're on Instagram as well. Check them out there. They're yeah. so friendly. They're almost... Um, overrun by their success it's like they've just be- become the most popular thing in Connemara but well worth eating they're they're brilliant cooks 
And then if you're okay. a vegetarian like me, Guy's Bar in Clifton is great for veggie food. They always have modern veggie options, you know, so you don't feel hard done by. So that's great. Okay. Okay. And for those people who like to take a drink, whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic, are there any bars that are particular favourites from your time in that area? Yeah, I love in Clifton, um, Mannions and Guys. Lowry's and the Central are lovely too. Anywhere, look at everywhere, people are friendly and you'll get a good pint or any kind of drink you want. Like this is the capital of Connemara we're talking about and they cater to all sorts of tastes. They're really, you know, top notch. Brilliant. Okay. Okay. That's fantastic. So on, on my own personal list for people who do head out into the same area that, that we both obviously love for, you know, mm. for, from, for the same kind of reasons, Renville, I don't know if you've been out there, Renville House yes. Hotel. Uh, yeah. I've stayed in. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like another world. It's just beautiful. Yeah. I'd highly recommend that too. Um, I just want to say as well that, you know, Connemara in a way is everybody knows about it or whatever. So if people are looking for somewhere wilder, but on a similar theme, you can't mm -hmm. go wrong with the West of Mayo. We stayed in Belmullet a couple of years ago and we went to the Cage of Fields and the absolute wilderness of the place will take your breath away. I mean, if you just love driving for hours, looking at the sea, looking at cliffs, looking at bog, you won't be disappointed with West Mayo. We had a fabulous time there. Really loved it. Okay, that's that, that that's a great tip tip obviously. Now, last but certainly not least, Nula, are there any other works in the pipeline at the moment? Yeah, I suppose um when I'm writing a novel, I just want to write the novel and I don't want to get distracted by other things and I devote my writing hours to that, which is my morning hours. Um but I am in between it I'm working on personal essays and flash fiction. I, I edit a flash fiction magazine called Splunk, so I'm always writing not always. I, I write flash fiction a good bit, more so than yeah. short stories now, more so than poetry. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm jotting down notes for this contemporary novel set in Ireland that may be the follow up to Closet. So watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Watch this space. You'll be waiting five or six years for that. Because the nature of the publishing industry is like I finished writing Nora in early 2019 and it's only coming out now. So there is a long process involved. Yes, there is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And did you find, just one last question, uh, did you find that the pandemic made things longer for you? Because some of the other writers I've I've spoken to certainly had that experience. Longer in what sense? In, ten, in terms of the publishing process. No, my book was scheduled for January in the USA um, and April here, and we stuck to that schedule. A lot of people asked me, was I nervous publishing a book in the pandemic? And I really wasn't because I could see what was happening. People were buying their books online. They were getting very devoted to reading. There was an awful lot of online action that was nearly twice the amount of before. So I had no nerves about it at all. The only thing I missed was me hoolies, you know, me, <laughs> me nights out, me book launches, me trips to festivals. We, I've been doing a lot of that from my desk. It's not the same. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's kind of in one way, it's all the stress and none of the fun. Mm. But you can have such enjoyable conversations as well that, you know, and then you're not away from home. So it doesn't leave my husband here trying to deal with everything else. So, you know, pluses and minuses. Um, I would be glad to get back out into the world. But I hope that a lot of the festivals will continue with some online content because it's been so great for me to be able to go to festivals I wouldn't normally be able to get to. You know, yeah, 
yeah, hopefully. I mean, hopefully that is something we'll see. Imagining the days where we consider that we're fairly safe, you know, post-pandemic, hopefully we'll have learned that there's a nice um, mixture to be had mm. between the online events still running and and continuing with the the lovely traditional festivals that, you know, that you've enjoyed so much over the years, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would be kind of the perfect solution, wouldn't it? It would. More inclusive. It would. It would. But listen, Nuala, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing to have you on. It's been lovely talking to you. It's so nice to hear your voice. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creative Places and Faces. We look forward to bringing you more creative insights into places around the world very soon.